0: Radio dot
1: com.
2: Welcome into to Rush the Field. Scott Satterberg here alongside veteran scout, coach, and consultant Chris Landry from LandryFootball.com. And it's an interesting time, Chris, in the college football schedule because... We have pro days. The, the teams are focused on getting their players ready for the NFL draft, showcasing them. Spring practices are underway as well. People are starting to look forward to training camps beginning after they take a break. It, you know, it's spring break for the students, so they're on leave, maybe some of them. It, it's kind of an interesting time right now in the later part of March here. It is um, spring practices, uh, all the focus,
1: and with coaching changes, personnel changes. I mean, you know, like for example, at Clemson, just peeking in over there, they're losing just a whole bunch of talent on the defensive side, but they've got a true freshman defensive tackle in Tyler Davis that is a really good player. That it's I think going to help them out a great deal. Um, you're getting, you know, the the Texas secondary is really getting a, a makeover and but they like what they have there. And, you know, a a lot of this time of year is about looking at players at different positions, getting a true feel for what you want to do, putting some of your installs of your systems in, but you really work on a lot of fundamentals and see what are the traits that your players that you have uh, are, because you don't do as much of that in the fall. And, you know, right now you don't have to prepare for an opponent. So uh it's a really good opportunity. I think it's one of the more underrated parts. Your offseason conditioning program and your spring practice is so important. Um, and I think people often confuse it, Scott, because they look at, well, this guy looks good in the spring, and that means he's gonna look good in the fall. No, it's not so much that, it's just maybe how things are progressing. And like, for example, if you're struggling in one aspect of your game. The running game is not really going well, or you're struggling in the passing game. That is not necessarily an indicator that you're gonna struggle in the fall. It's an indicator that maybe the things that you're trying to do are not working all that well. So you have to maybe go back to the drawing board and say, all right, we're gonna have to look at some of our different route concepts and change it up a little bit. Maybe we need to change a little bit how we block certain plays. So. It's the reaction to the result that often leads to what the result's going to be in a fall. And so I think it's really important that you absorb what goes on in spring, but not necessarily think that it's going to mimic your success or failure during the fall.
2: You mentioned uh, Clemson, and I want <clears throat> to bring up the fact that they're losing junior wide receiver Amari Rogers. Likely for the season after tearing his ACL earlier this week in practice. Uh, Now, Dabo Swinney did say that if the surgery goes well and rehab goes well, he could be back late in the 2019 season. But I don't know what, what the extent of the damage is. But anytime you have an ACL, you know it's serious can they withstand the loss of the junior wide receiver like this? I know they have what T Higgins is coming back. Um, They got Justin Ross as well. And and a couple of young players, you know, they have enough talent, but you know, you're losing a starting wide receiver. That's pretty big.
1: No question. Uh, It's, it's big, but they do have some really good ones. Some big guys that, um, that, that I think there's enough depth there and they've recruited quite well at that position. So I think they're fine there. I really do. Um, I, I think that they'll have some guys that'll come in, or help them too. Uh, the Williams kid from Maryland is, is somebody that uh, could probably help them pretty early as well. So, uh, I, I think that there's a number of guys they'll miss them, but they can recover from it. They're in that elite category to where, you know, that they'll be able to step in and have somebody that can help them. So, um, you know, when you look at that position, they are as talented as anybody in terms of guys that are big, that can run. And so they're in, they're in good shape. And you know who, you know who Amari Rogers' father is, right? Uh, yes. Um, gosh, I forgot his, I forgot his dad's first name. Guys, T. Martin. Help me. Uh, a T.
2: T. It's Martin. Absolutely yep. T. Martin. That's correct. <laughs> Who's that now, is correct. he's at, he's back at Tennessee now. He's back he's, at yeah.
1: Tennessee working there. Uh, but, uh, T is obviously a legend there and, um, yeah, I couldn't remember. I knew his, he had a dad that didn't have the same name. I um, mean, I couldn't. I couldn't remember exactly which one it was. Yes, exactly. Yep. So there's there's some really good players there that are coming back that um, that can really help them.
2: Yeah, it's, it, you mentioned it's an interesting time and what teams have to do now to prepare for everything that is coming throughout the season. Uh, obviously, coaching deals. We talked about Ed Orgeron. Uh, this is something that maybe schools would like to get this done now before the season begins, before the real work begins. We've seen, as mentioned, Ed Orgeron. Now NC State is signing Dave Doran to a five-year contract. He gets a nice extension, so coaching news you say when it, when you're trying to fill out a staff but also trying to get these financial situations done before you really get into the nitty gritty that's what's important here too right
1: well yeah and and to get it done before May recruiting because it is such a big you know recruiting the recruiting calendar has moved up now so having stability of okay this guy's got a contract that extends beyond just one or two years um you know, that's an important part. While I think kids are sophisticated enough to realize that no one is guaranteed to be there for your four, for the four years, you, you at least want to go in with the idea that, you know, the guy that's going to recruit me, um, position coach and head coach, will likely be there. And, and May's a big recruiting month. And the summer jauntlet in June where you've got camps, All of that's a really important time in recruiting to get kids to come and visit, come to camp. And so getting that done and getting that out there is really important at that time, as opposed to if it's done a little bit later, you may lose a little bit of traction, a little bit of stability or perceived stability in your program um, if you don't have that extension. And look, you look at the deal for ed. Um, it, it still is is very cheap by by uh, it's sixth or seventh among SEC coaches in terms of ranking. Uh, it, it's a good deal for him. It gives some stability, but it doesn't really put LSU behind the eight ball. If let's say in a year or two they felt like they needed to go in a different direction, it's not going to be like what they had to buy out for Les Miles, which they completed that deal. Uh, before he took the Kansas job, but that cost them a pretty penny.
2: And speaking of coaches and payroll, Alabama's 10 on-field assistant coaches will make an FBS leading $7.541 million in basic compensation for the 2019 season. You, you talked about it when we talked about Nick Saban last week. You know, when he's given the budget, he hires not just one coach, but an assistant to that coach. Ten on-field assistant coaches making that much money. No wonder Alabama is the top program in the country.
1: And and that doesn't include all the analysts that are involved. Correct, that, correct, you know, yes. That's why I say
2: on-field assistants. Yeah,
1: exactly. And that doesn't – the average salaries of those don't nearly match – um, the, these salaries, but you start adding them to the mix means a lot. But here's the other thing too, is he get guys like Butch Jones who are just collecting the paycheck from Tennessee and getting like you know benefits and twenty grand from Alabama. That's the advantage too that they get. They get kind of free labor, if you will, in that they get guys that maybe want to stay in the game, uh, kind of rebuild, rehabilitate, or, or maybe get a leg up on. Uh, job opportunities in another year. They're collecting money from one school in a buyout, and they can come over and get benefits and, and and be set up. So it works both ways, and it's it's been very, very effective as coaches have gone on, have had success under Saban. But uh, it, it's interesting that he's made a lot of these changes in mind. And um, being at the pro day, um, you could kind of sense that Um, From him anyway, that that there's a feeling of needing to get back to Alabama football, which is, you know, physically dominant, establishing the running game, going to score points, absolutely want the quarterback points come out of the passing game, but they want to break teams' will with the running game. And I think they felt like, at least at the latter part of the season, as it relates to the playoffs against Oklahoma, game that they won, and Clemson, game they obviously got blown out of the national championship they felt like they lost their way a little bit and they became a little bit uh, more up and down the field, chasing points and got away from their identity a little bit. And I think that the whole focus of who he's hired and the mantra that he's put forth with the strength and conditioning staff and his entire coaching staff and sports staff is that we're gonna go back you know, to reestablish our identity and, and that's what I think he means with it.
2: Well, we have a lot of information to get to regarding our featured program of the day because it's a big one. So without further ado, our state of the program feature. What's going on at your favorite school? This is state of the program on Rush the Field. And today's school is the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, Chris. And when you look at this program, we're talking about Newt Rockney to Ara Parsigan to Lou Holtz. Uh, it, it, there's just countless lists of names. The Heisman Trophy <coughs> winners from Tim Brown going back to Paul Hornig. This is one of the most, if not the most, treasured programs in all of college football, the Golden Domers.
1: It is. When you look at the history uh, of college football, Notre Dame stands alone singularly as the nation's football program. And, And it was established that way because As I've always said, college football has always been a regional sport followed in every region. The modern-day BCS and now playoffs have made it more of a national feel to it. And podcasts like this, national shows have kind of contributed to it. But it was always in the old days. You followed your program. You maybe listened to the games on the radio. You went to the games. There was very little game on TV, uh, college football back in the old days, and even college football so old that you really didn't have t- television for, you know, the Newt Rockne era and and so on and so forth. So you read about it and from the great sports writers, but, you know, you you'd, you'd get it and you'd hear about it. But you'd focus on if you're out west, it was USC and the Midwest and, you know, it was Michigan and the, the south that you know the Alabamas and, you know, the great programs. And then the east, you had the great, you know, Ivy League programs and, you know, so on and so forth. Notre Dame was the first true national program. They developed this with this, um, the, the Subway alumni where they went around the country. They traveled in, in predating planes. They got on the road and they took trains to USC to play that game because they were selling Notre Dame's brand. And Notre Dame was a national brand. Going back in the day where a lot of folks followed their college football team through their Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning coaches show, which normally just kind of replayed the game in a quick fashion with the coaches talking over it. Uh, you caught if you, you caught the Bear Bryant show at 430 on Sunday afternoon <laughs> in Alabama yep. and uh, it, in Baton Rouge, you listen to the, you know, the Paul Dietrich and Charlie Mack show at 1030 in the morning and so on and so forth. Notre Dame was the first to run a national show. They literally and the, the tech, technolo- technology technology kind of is above me, but they would take. The the video and I don't know how they uploaded. I don't know if pre satellites or whatnot, Scott. But but basically, everyone around the country. You could be in California. You could be in the Midwest. You can be in the Southeast. You can listen to Lindsey Nelson talk about Notre Dame football, the Notre Dame replay, and and later on in the fourth quarter, Notre Dame, and it was it became a national program. Today, everybody's a national program, but in its time. Uh, it was the only national program. You mentioned kind of the early history. The first guy was a coach by the name of James Morrison. I always love throwing these figures out there. In 1894, Morrison was hired for two weeks. $40 plus expenses <laughs> is what his salary was. And, um, in, in, of course, in 1908, they got the win over Franklin College. And uh, the, the end by the name of Faye Wood. Fay Wood. Caught the first touchdown pass in Notre Dame history. Then Jess Harper became the head coach in 1913 and remained there until he retired in 1917. They had, at that time, they had the big upset over Army, um, beating them 35-13 in a game played at West Point. That was in November of 1913. That was they were led by quarterback Gus Dorias and end by the name of Newt Rockney. Mm-hmm. Yes, that Newt Rockney. And, and of course um, that this particular game. Probably most people looked at it as the invention of the forward pass. Um, And then it's a little bit uh, muddy in terms of that. But prior to the contest in 1913, um, basically the passing game was the receivers would come to a full stop and wait for the ball to come to them. And and this was the first game in which – Doris threw the ball to Rockney, who caught the ball in stride, and it just changed the nature of the forward pass. Well, so we all know that uh, Rockney became an assistant. and was teaching chemistry at Notre Dame, but he was an assistant football coach, and he became the head coach in 1918. And what a record he had! 105 and 12 was his record. Five ties. Um, the 105, 105 wins just was the dominant. Um, that he exhibited there they won three national titles five undefeated seasons won the rose bowl in 25 they produced george gipp the great george gipp win one for the gipper the yeah, four right. horsemen. win one for the gipper uh, and uh and then rockety invented the notre dame box and ran at that time what was a seven-two-two scheme defensively to defend the run um you know it, it was it was really uh the, the guys that he had on his first teams in, in 1918 was Gip Leonard Bahan, and a guy by the name in, in the backfield by the name of Curly Lambeau. Mm-hmm. You heard of Curly Lambeau as of Lambeau Field? Mm-hmm. Yes, that one that went on to play pro football and coach the Packers uh, was once coached by Newt Ropney. Of course, George Gipp, the famous, you know, story there. He played, died by, his,
2: played by,
1: played by? Played uh, by Ronald Reagan. Ronald there. Reagan. <laughs> and, and went for the Gipper. So, and and he died just two weeks after uh, Walter Camp elected him as Notre Dame's first All-American. So George Gipp was the first All-American. You know, it's <clears throat> ironic, but in doing the research, Gipp actually died. Just to give you an idea, I had a grandfather who I never met died in 1931 of a ruptured appendix. And you think about today's medicine and how you know things happen that you know wouldn't happen today. You know, Gip had strep throat. Mm. He and, and he he got it by giving up punting lessons after a game in November against Northwestern. And he developed pneumonia and strep throat. And since no antibiotics were available in the 20s that just the infection got worse, and he died. And, of course, that's why the, the you know old age was 42, 45 at that age, because yeah. you just didn't, you know. And, and so it's just, you, you think about how old football is, and you put it in relation to society. It was unbelievable. So um, Notre Dame became that first team that had a forward-passing attack, and then you had, of course, the Four Horsemen, the, the national champion nineteen twenty four team with a uh, strew Driller, miller crowley and elmer laden um then they had the line known as the seven mules and um really really um the really good teams there obviously championship caliber teams um the 29 and 30 teams went unbeaten the 30 team was led by um you know uh, frank Carrido and marty schwartz and joe chivaldi and marty brill and it was the first and only example of All four members of that backfield in the Notre Dame box, all four of them were all Americans. Uh, The 29 team played all of its games on the road because Notre Dame stadium was built. So uh, it is, it's uh, Rockne of course died in uh, March of 31. In fact, we're coming up on the anniversary end of March. Um, He was on his way on a, on a plane trip and uh, Mm -hmm. died in a crash. And uh, of course, At that time, as he was big in kind of building Notre Dame, he was literally going on a trip to help in the production of the film called The Spirit of Notre Dame. Uh, And there is a uh, Rockne Memorial in Flint Hills, Kansas, where the crash site was. Um, Hartley Anderson replaced him. Uh, from his staff well he actually uh, was part of the staff but he came over from the st louis head coach um he was a former uh, irish player under rockney and he was assistant coach at the time of rockney's death he left after the 33 season to accept the head coaching position at north carolina state then elmer Layden, one of the four horsemen comes in in 34 as the new head coach and did a really nice job 47 wins 13 losses he left notre dame after 1940 season scott to become the commissioner of the national football league mm. um laden had left notre dame frank Leahy uh had taken his place uh he comes in 1941 he was the boston college head coach um he was another former Irish player. He graduated from Notre Dame. He coached the seven blocks of granite at Fordham, which was one of them was Vince Lombardi. Um, he coached uh, Boston College to a 41, the 1941 Sugar Bowl team and a share of the national championship. Hard nose guy. Um, he coached a team for 11 seasons from 41 to 43 and 46-53. to He left to go to the Navy, and that would separate him in 1945, but he came back. He had 87 wins, 11 losses, 9 ties, 39 consecutive games without a loss, 37-0-2 in a stretch, four national championships, six undefeated seasons. A fifth national championship game was lost because of a 1953 game tied against Iowa in a game that filled... uh, Featured uh, Johnny Latmer, the Heisman Trophy winner, that um, caused a minor scandal at the time because it looked like some Irish players were faking some injuries to stop the clock and they were nicknamed the Fainting Irish. <laughs> so, um, and so, in Leahy, doesn't get the credit. Rockney, Parsegan, who we're going to talk yep. about, gets credit. Frank Leahy is the guy that doesn't get talked about enough because he's kind of just in the middle. The guy won four national championships. He And he, and he, he, he had, well, he had once been at Notre Dame, but he left to go to World War II in the Navy, and he was honorably discharged as a captain. Uh, he retired in 54 due to health issues. Um, and he actually got so sick at a game against Georgia Tech in 53 that he collapsed at halftime. It got so bad that they called a priest to give him his last rites. They didn't think he was going to make it. Um, he recovered, but he, they, they said he had a pancreatitis and brought on by nervousness. High-energy guy, and, and, and he lived longer. But, but just interesting how things played out. Great coach. Terry Brennan comes in in 54 to 58. Um, he was 25 years old and he, uh, he did a nice job. He was a really good high school coach in the Chicago area, and he coached the freshman squad at Notre Dame. Um, did a nice job there. He coached, um, in 1956, Paul Horning, who won the Heisman Trophy. Mm-hmm. You just talked about him, mentioned him. He's still, to this day, the only Heisman Trophy winner to play for a team with a losing record. Um, he just didn't have the, the, the great... Um, record or presence and it, he was at a, at a weird time. This is when Notre Dame's administration started to become a little bit weird because in an era where they had no scholarship limitations in college football, Notre Dame, yes, Notre Dame began the process administratively of de-emphasizing football. They cut scholarships and really this hurt and cut Brennan off at the knees. Then comes Joe Kuharic. Um, who was coached at the Niners and the Cardinals and the Redskins, but was a Notre Dame grad. His all longtime ambition was to coach his alma mater, and, boy, he struggled. He just – he had four non-winning seasons, the worst record in the history – of the Notre Dame coaches, was just unbelievable. Now, the one thing that I remember about this era, though, in 61, Notre Dame played Syracuse, and it led to a, a, a basically an adjustment or a change in modern-day football rules. So, again, Notre Dame faced Syracuse, trailed 15, 14, three seconds left to play. A desperation 56-yard field goal fell short, time ran out. Syracuse appeared to have won the game. Syracuse was penalized for roughing the place kicker. Mm. Well, Notre Dame drilled a 41 yard field goal, 117 15. Syracuse, the rule was not written, Scott, this way. Syracuse said, no, under the rules, a second kick shouldn't have been allowed because time had expired. It was never really clear that the rules weren't very clear at that time. (laughs) And as to whether they should have allowed the play, that led to the rule that we all know today. A half and a game can't end on a defensive penalty. Prior to that game, it was not clearly written. And to this day, some people at Syracuse thought they got holes because the rule wasn't clearly written. Obviously, there was maybe an understanding that just led to the clarification of the rules. Now, on to Aaron Parsegian, who comes in in 64. He left Northwestern where he was the head coach there. And, boy, he did uh, – next to Rockney, he's probably considered the best. As I, I mentioned, Leahy doesn't get enough credit. But this guy had an unbelievable record. Rockney, first of all, won 88 percent of his games. Leahy, 86. Parsegian, 83. Parsegian's team never won a fewer than seven or lost more than three games during 10 regular season games of his era. It was, was outstanding. It was under Parsegian, though, that Notre Dame lifted its 40-plus-year-old no-bowl games, beginning with the 1969 season in which the Irish played number one Texas in the Cotton Bowl, losing in the final minutes in a closely contested game. Um, the following year, Parsegian's club uh, – Ended Texas' Southwestern Conference record 30-game winning streak in the 71 Cotton Bowl. That Notre Dame team basically kicked out because everyone just assumed that Notre Dame wasn't going to the bowl game. Uh-huh. It was going to be a great Charlie McClendon LSU team, which we talked about last week. That was maybe the best team that Charlie McClendon ever had. And it got screwed out of the Cotton Bowl because Notre Dame decided they were going to go to a bowl game. And it, it, you didn't have all these other bowl games, and so there was no place for LSU to go. But this was a really good start for Eric Parsegian. His 11-year career, 95-17-4, two national championships, won the MacArthur Bowl in 64. He had undefeated seasons in 66 and 73. They had John he as the Heisman Trophy winner. Cliff Brown became the first African-American quarterback, um, and he retired uh, forced to retire after the 74 season. But he's kind of considered as the, the modern era, you know, great coach. And, and, again, I think Leahy doesn't get enough credit, but Arrow was just – he was Arrow. He was great. He was beloved. So much so that his replacement, Dan Devine, probably never got a fair shake as well. He He Dan had coached very successfully at Arizona State, at Missouri, and the coach of the Green Bay Packers. Um, he was a candidate for the Notre Dame job in 64 when Ara was hired. Um, and he just, he jumped on this job. He always wanted it. And he did a really good job. I won the 77 national championship led by a junior quarterback by the name of Joe Montana. Um, the championship season had the 38, 10 win in the, the 78 cotton bowl over a top ranked Texas. That was very controversial because Notre Dame went from fifth to first in the polls that year. Um, It was, you know, but, but it was a really good team and beat a really good team. And Devine was the one that came up with the idea to, to switch the, in the Notre, in the USC game, rather, he switched uh, between the pregame and the start of the game from Navy Blue to Kelly Green jerseys. And they pulled the big upset. Um, No, I thought he did a really good job there. But because he replaced Arrow, who was a legend, he never got the credit. Um, he, When they let him go, basically pushed him out. There was a lot of talk at the time that his replacement – first of all, there was some talk that Arrow would come back. That never was the case. He always said, I'm not coming back. I'm not coaching anymore. They thought – and this was a strong, strong rumor – that they were going to – that Don Shula was going to lead the Dolphins and become the Notre Dame coach. Don Shula grew up in Ohio and Midwest, and uh, that never materialized, obviously. And so they hired probably the most inauspicious coach in Jerry Faust who – you know, was a great high school coach at Moeller High School in Cincinnati. A lot of his players went to Notre Dame. It just didn't work well at all. He had, his final record was 30, 26 and one. And it was just, it was a mess. And um, then comes in Lou Holtz. Lou Holtz, after getting basically run out of Arkansas, going to Minnesota, did a really nice job at the University of Minnesota. Of course, Lou had been a successful coach. He started at William & Mary and at NC State didn't have a lot of success with the Jets, um, but then you know the Arkansas-Minnesota jobs has some success. He comes in, takes over Jerry Falwell's squad. They didn't win a lot of games in in '86, but they were in every game. '87 in an eight and four record. Tim Brown was on the roster. They started playing well. Well, it was '88. Lou started to get his players in, and they started to relax the academic. Restrictions and because they wanted to win, they wanted to get back, and boy, get back they did. And Lou was a really good motivator and a disciplinarian. 88 they upset Miami, number one Miami in the Catholics versus convict game. They beat number three West Virginia and the Major Harris in the Fiesta Bowl. They won the national championship. They finished a perfect 12 and 8, and it's the last undefeated season in the national championship. Notre Dame Um, and and, you know I think the the rest of Lou's tenure spent their 10 years um, there's always been a lot of question about why Lou left I can add some insights into that and that Notre Dame's administration as I said even going back to the days of coach Brennan there was always a they want to win in football but they always want to be known as a great High integrity university, academic first. And when the football got really successful, they tend to want to pull back away from football and make sure that 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 the that the academics was shining the the, the brightest and whatnot. Was it because was was
2: Holtz trying to recruit players that wouldn't make it academically?
1: Oh, absolutely. They, in fact, just it, what they did was when they hired Lou from Minnesota in '86. Uh, they started to relax some of the rules. I'm not going to mention names. That would just be, uh huh. But but you can go back. There were some some guys on that team, some really good starters. People people know who they are. I'm not going to mention them. That weren't typical Notre Dame students. And you know whether it's getting them the right credits at Holy Cross College across the street, or you know whatever the case may be. They sacrificed, and Lou convinced them that to be a champion, we've got to go out and do what other people do. And they did. They relaxed it a little bit. And then after about 10 years, and they won it, then they started to have some guys that that weren't quite what they had hoped. And maybe the image of the academic side was getting a little tarnished. So they pulled back on it. And that's when Lou Holtz decided to – Re- resign or retire just because to quote him just because it felt like the right thing to do mm-hmm. well the right thing to do was because they were they were pulling back their their uh, th- their allowances of certain academic guys to come in and so that was the story behind that but they had some really good players there i mean pettis and tony rice and waters and culver and levens and you know i mean Ismail and Burris and i mean irv smith uh irv, irv's dad irv smith jr is coming in this year you know a lot of guys you know reggie but a lot of good good players not all of them are bad a- academic guys i don't want to insinuate that yeah. but some of them work so bob davy gets replaces him and he was a defense coordinator had an opportunity to go to purdue and turned it down and they just promoted him because the program was successful Well, they didn't do a very good job. They suffered three bowl losses to, like, the Independence Bowl, the Gator Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl. And in 1999, Notre Dame was placed on probation by the NCAA for the one and only time in its history. And that obviously did him in. They dismissed him after the 2001 season and then became an interesting run because they hired George O'Leary to replace him.
2: And we all know what happened there. That lasted five
1: days. That lasted five days. And George was— it was there a better coach for the old Irish than George O'Leary from Georgia Tech, man? Um, in, in obviously, there, there's an issue there with his resume and some – so he's gone after five days. Tyrone Willingham is hired in from Stanford.
2: And that was a big deal because he's he the first African-American coach and uh, there was – you, you look, you hate to say it, but it's the fact of the matter. There was a lot of opposition because he was black and a lot of people that were Notre Dame traditionalists and maybe not so forward thinking. were not okay with this. This was a polarizing hire for Notre Dame.
1: It was. And the, as you mentioned, it was the first one in Notre Dame's history. Um, now, he there is some talent there in the 2002 squad eh, 10 and 2 regular season brady quick eight, eight, yeah eight and zero start they beat number seven michigan i remember they beat a top 10 i think florida state might have been you know i don't know if they were top 10 just outside of the top 10 um and they move up there and they're number four in the country and so this is going really well early then they have a a heartbreaking loss to boston college but brady uh,
2: quinn was, was later that was yes that might have been um, like carlisle the, holiday in, or something
1: uh 2002 i'm trying to think 2002 would have been um I think it
2: was uh, holiday, no that was
1: right? like a, that was like um um i'm trying to think here 2002 who would that have been that would have been like, um, yeah, Carlo Holiday, mm-hmm. those type of guys. Br- Brady came in. I think Brady was right after, though. Yes. Uh, Matt, Matt Lavecchio too, and Carlo Holiday. Those 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 are the guys that were kind of in that area with. Yeah, Ty, because I Brady think. came They're in.
2: Because because <clears> Brady <throat> came in right like in the bridge between because he was coached by charlie weiss also but yes. he was a tyrone willingham recruit correct. so he came in with tyrone willingham and then obviously charlie weiss correct. led into to that one that one really good season correct and we all remember the bush push but we'll get to Co- that
1: correct and so the program though after the early start um i mean lopsided losses to usc and nc state negated ball and Ty didn't recruit very well. And that was the thing. You know, he coached well at Stanford and, you know, but he couldn't recruit at a high level at like Notre Dame or Washington where he got a job later and, and it just it got worse. He was let go. Then they bring in Charlie Weiss.
2: Well, they tried, Charlie, to, they tried to get Urban Meyer, remember? Absolutely. They, they did. They
1: were going. They wanted Urban. Urban was an assistant under Lou Holtz, was considered to be his dream job, but he decided he was leaving Utah to go to Florida instead. Mm-hmm. So um, they they did uh, make that move, and, you know, of course, Charlie comes in. Charlie never played football, but he was a student. But in he Ohio. went there, yeah. And obviously heralded, and he sells it, and I still say the best win that Charlie Weiss ever had was the loss to USC. <laughs>
2: uh, the Bush push. It was the yes. Bush push. And I'll, I'll always remember that game, Chris, because— They didn't cut the grass at Notre Dame Stadium. They let it grow out to try and slow down Reggie Bush. And then they came out with the Kelly Green jerseys for the first time in years. Mm -hmm. And they lost because of the Matt Liner quarterback sneak Reggie Bush pushing him in from behind.
1: You got it. Mm-hmm. That's it. it's exactly it, and of um, course that was a common occurrence, letting grasses grow and watering yep. <laughs> the field. Um, you know, but but th- th- this was something that absolutely this was very well noticed in the modern age. And uh, listen, he had his inaugural season was nine and three, and. Guys, Charlie was so arrogant, and he he came out and said, "Oh, remember the decided schematic advantages teams would have with him as coach." And anyway, it was a disaster. He could not recruit very well, uh, and and the teams, despite having some pretty good players, um, just underachieved big time. And uh, D- he didn't have much success at all. And and quite frankly, that was the highlight—the day that he almost almost won that game. But uh, the highlight for him was when he got fired uh, because his buyout was tremendous. uh, They're still paying for him. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's actually – I think it it finally ended. It finally ended, but but it it was totaled. He got a total of $19 million from Notre Dame. Mm. Uh, He actually was making more money um, the first year that Brian Kelly got the job, who replaced Charlie in 2010 – Charlie Weiss was actually making more money than Brian Kelly in Brian's first year. Yeah, and also oh, he was
2: making more money from Notre Dame than, yes. than, than he was when he was coaching Kansas. Correct, yeah. but he was making more money for not coaching Notre Dame
1: than Brian was for coaching Notre Dame. Notre Dame was paying more money to Charlie than Brian in the year 2010 when Brian got the job. So as we go— and What's crazy the- when is
2: when they fired him is that the, the alumni— like the boosters were willing, they wanted to pay for it because they hated him. They wanted him out so fast they that they were they willing did. to pay the entire buy. The bo- boosters kept coming in out of the woodwork, saying, "We will give you money to pay Charlie White's buyout."
1: They, he, they, I mean, he, they, they, you couldn't have put it better. They were just, they were disgusted by him. It was not. I mean, here is the thing, they, they you know, they knew that Jerry Foss was in over his head, you know, and, and they were going to let him, but they, they weren't going to fire him before his contract ended. They weren't going to do, I mean, they just were going to deal with it and, and poor thing. He lost like Miami, like put 58, seven on, but the, there is a respect for him. He was, but, but Charlie was just arrogant, crass. I mean, it, it, the opposite of what Notre Dame kind of in, likes for their coach but brian kelly comes in obviously from cincinnati and cincinnati's 12 and 0 record bcs bowl game but brian's done a really good job since he's been there and and um and and i think you know obviously leading him to the bcs championship game and people will talk oh they all play in the conference and the schedule's weak you're right and you're right well in some years i think the schedule is pretty formidable but as schedules happen, sometimes they're not as good as they look on paper going in. It obviously got hammered by Alabama and and obviously made the playoffs again. And, and you know, listen, the bottom line is they've got a really good program under Brian. I think that people don't recognize that, as I've mentioned throughout this, that Notre Dame's recruiting um, limitations and, and and challenges, let's put it that way. All freshmen have got to take calculus. All freshmen have to live on campus. There there are things that you have to do there that you don't do at other places. I said it before and I'll say it again. Notre Dame is, if I were to say what program operates similarly in terms of restrictions, it's probably Stanford. And yet, you know, I think people look at Notre Dame as they should be what Alabama or Clemson is. Well, They've got a lot more restrictions with all due respect to Alabama and Clemson. um, A lot of those guys could not be recruited by Notre Dame, nor could they be recruited by Stanford. No disrespect. Not everybody's cut out for those places. They're recruiting a different type of athlete. And there's a lot of restrictions there. Now, the difference is Stanford is very much – Notre Dame is very conservative, Catholic, and you know, and that part's different than Stanford. But in terms of academic requirements, it's very, very challenging. The fact that people, I don't think, respect Brian Kelly enough. It's, it's a shame. I think the guy's an outstanding coach. And tell me, who? I can tell you this: you would not get an, It's why Urban Meyer didn't want the job, despite the fact that it was kind of what he wanted it if they would have given him the Lou Holtz deal where he can have free rent. You do. It. Uh, Nick Saban was once, you know, uh, contacted about that job and one of those moves. Lou, um, um, Nick didn't um, even take phone call. I mean, he didn't. He just. That's not a job that is for a big time program. It is you don't have the resources. You have financial resources, but you don't have the ability to go out and do things that other programs do in terms of just getting players. You don't have um, a broad-based curriculum that you can recruit to, and you you don't have any places you can put those athletes. Like you know, I think you could do it, but. They don't do that, and so I think that needs to be put in perspective. I don't think people understand it. Look, Notre Dame, there's nobody. You ever heard anybody that just doesn't have a you know? Eh, I'm not you know. I don't have any feeling about Notre Dame. Most people hate Notre Dame or they love them. I mean, they they are a polar most polarizing team, I think in modern day. Scott, I don't know how you feel about it, but a lot of people say, hey, they're not in a conference. It's not fair. Uh, they should be made to be in a conference. Well, they're Notre Dame and. I hate to put it this way, but they're the one program more than any other program, Mm -hmm. more than Alabama or anybody. uh, NBC pays them a healthy Mm -hmm. amount of money Mm -hmm. to be their broadcast partners. And until they say and every other network says we're not interested in doing that, why should they share the money? That's why they now they
2: switch from Big East to ACC and other sports. Yes. Um, so the, and, and, and the football program is required to play. They play basically an correct. ACC schedule. They play five. They play They play five. Four. They play four. They play five mm. I think it's five. I think it's five ACC games a year. And then, so it's if they have an 11 game schedule, five, it's six and five. So, if, you know, they have five games against ACC opponents, which is basically like playing an ACC conference schedule if you were in almost, one of the divisions. Almost. Yeah. Almost. Not now, fully, you but know, yeah.
1: They probably could look at it and say maybe Notre Dame and you know you could look at it if you look at the whole process that maybe Notre Dame should have had to play Clemson to decide who you know deserves to get in the playoffs but look that's the reality that's the rules and 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 the bottom line it it, in certain years their record may be really good and it may be a byproduct of the fact that maybe some of the teams on their schedule are not as good as they normally are they know their schedule is normally loaded but when you have schools that run it that are not as good, uh, it, it brings up something that is unique. Now, it also brings up when you don't have a conference championship game, that's one less game to play. So, look, until until you're able to win in the playoffs and kind of prove that you're worthy, uh, people are going to have that jaundice eye and saying, you know what, they don't deserve it, they get a free ride and whatnot, and, and so on and so forth. There is no question they're the most polarizing team still today. In college football. Because- well, just look at what
2: they do. You know, they have the Shamrock series in which they play a game uh at a at a at a famous stadium. They play games in Ireland. I think they're doing they're playing Navy in Ireland in 2020. Um, you know, that they're playing games in all these uh NFL stadiums or in baseball stadiums and they're selling out. I went to the Notre Dame Syracuse game at Yankee Stadium this past year right. and it was all Notre Dame fans. Even though Syracuse is a New York school, the whole place was green. It was incredible. It was such an no, incredible No, That's right. And, and that's you know, what they do. people
1: always say, you know, like, you know, great college football programs where this this fan base travels. That fan base travels. Notre Dame doesn't travel. Just wherever they are, they're Notre Dame fans. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are North, South, East, West, Midwest, Rocky Mountains, and any other play in betwixt and between, they're Notre Dame fans. Uh it, it subway alumni. As you you know mentioned, they got that series. They still go out west. You know, they go on a plane now instead of trains, <laughs> But they go out. They go out west. They play USC, of course. And now they play Stanford. Now, um, I hate the fact that they don't play the the Michigan game regularly all the time. I'd like to see that every year. That was the first game that Notre Dame ever played. I didn't mention that it was against Michigan. So there's a history there. But then there's a kind of a a history of them kind of pulling apart in different areas. So look, I mean, there was a point in time where they played a little bit more. They used to play Michigan state and Michigan. They've got a unique situation. They don't want to be a part of a conference because they want to have their national, they, they, hey, they want to keep their TV money. Yes. Of course. Mm-hmm. And they want to, they want to be able to play. They, first of all, um, They play Navy. People always say, well, why do they play Navy? Here's another little fact that's interesting. There was a point in time uh, around the war where Notre Dame was about ready to close up the university. It was a major problem and depressed area. And the Naval Academy basically saved Notre Dame, the university, and the athletic department, and the football team. They basically supported them. And so there's a history there going back to days that nobody that's alive now was ever a part of it. But back in the day, you know, this was a real thing. And the history of that is always why that Notre Dame always wants, has always wanted to play Navy. Because even though, you know, Army and, and Notre Dame and Navy and Army, they were all great teams back in the day. We know Navy's not. We know Navy has been good and, as well. But, but even if Notre Navy's bad, Notre Dame always wants to honor them by playing them because of what they did to their for their university and for their program, so that that that's the same reason why, for example, the Detroit Lions always play on Thanksgiving because Mr. Ford, um, God rest his soul, when no one wanted to host a Thanksgiving Day game because everybody thought it was stupid, mm-hmm. um, they did it and now everybody wants to have it. So they still respect and honor the Lions and uh, of being able to play it. What well, that so they like to keep Navy. <clears throat> they like to keep the USC game. Now, they, the Stanford game's been around a while as well. But they like to to play these other games and then, all right, let's say we'll play a Florida State. We'll, you know, we'll play a Tech. We'll do different things. Um, so that's why they don't want to have a full – if they played a full-fledged ACC schedule, well, then they can only play one or two of those. And that's just not what they want to do. They are a little different in that they have a national brand – that's not tied to the ACC. It's not tied to the Big Ten. It's not tied to the Pac-12. It's not tied to the SEC or anywhere else. It's national. Um, does it make them better? No, on the field, they haven't been as good as the best programs in the country, but they're still pretty good. And But their brand, look, their brand is as big as ever. And until that changes, if it ever changes, they're never leaving unless it becomes financially worthwhile for them to do so look they play they used to be independent in basketball it'd be them and marquette and DePaul and dayton i mean they play an independent schedule um you know one of digger phelps you know final four teams in 78 was that was an independent schedule Mm -hmm. of course their sports can't handle that now um i think they play i think they play don't they play a – I think they play a Big Ten schedule in hockey because in the ACC, hockey, they don't have hockey. Hockey
2: is the only – yeah, uh, they're, they're the only one – the only non-football sport that is um, that is not ACC. So That's every right. other non-football sport for Notre Dame is in the ACC except for ice hockey. And ice so hockey, they, it's like – Yeah, they play – I think they play the Big Ten. I think they play, they play a, basically a Big Ten schedule. So they do it, and and
1: it's a little bit of a hodgepodge, but – you know, and people get rankled when you say this, but they are Notre Dame. And you know what? If you can do it and people are willing to, you know, put up with it, and I don't mean the fans. I'm talking about the the things that matter, the people that matter in the finances. They'll continue to do that. I think Notre Dame's program is in good shape. I wonder if the right opportunity comes along if Brian will leave for the NFL. Uh, it hasn't come. I think he's happy there, at least now. There's been times where I've wondered how happy he is there mm. and whether the right NFL opportunity will will you know lead him to leave but I think they're in good shape and I I am I shake my head when people say it's time for Brian Kelly to go. Good luck with finding someone that's, that's right. going to give mm-hmm. them you know what you want and that is notre dame back in the day where they were winning national championships on a regular basis it's a different world folks and i don't think people quite get that
2: well that was our state of the program feature on the notre dame fighting irish lots to digest because well it's probably the program with the richest history in all of college football coming up next week we will get into the oklahoma sooners as we are inside the top five of the final AP poll for the college football rankings. And by the way, it's scouting season. You guys have to know this. The NFL draft is coming up. There's no place better to be than LandryFootball.com. Veteran scout Chris Landry takes you step-by-step through the free agency, through the draft process, around the NFL. You get the NFL news. You get the college news. Just join LandryFootball.com today. It's less than a magazine subscription. You get access to all of this and so much more with a special special discount now. Right, Chris? Absolutely.
1: Almost 60% off. It's more than 50%. And it takes you through the rest, is, Scott said, the rest of the, the draft process, uh, all the pro days. Got our draft boards out now. Uh, we're going to have scouting reports on all the players. The rest of free agency. We're going to be breaking down rosters in college and the NFL. It'll take you through all of that leading you to the football season. Then you've got the football season. So it takes you all the way through an entire calendar year for almost 60% off. So it's one-stop shopping football, uh, recruiting, college football, the draft, the NFL, free agency, you name it. One-stop shopping football. If you like football, you'll love LandryFootball.com. And don't forget to click on the Warroom logo on the front page of LandryFootball.com. Send us your email. Why? you get the free for free or the war room newsletter that'll give you some interesting nuggets going on around uh, the world of football news and information, but also some interesting things that take you inside the draft room, inside a coach's meeting room. That's what we do for you. And of course you can catch all the podcasts and everything that we do up on LandryFootball.com as well.
2: Yep, new episodes of the Landry Football Podcast every Tuesday and Thursday, new episodes of Rush the Field every Wednesday, the War Room Newsletter, as Chris mentioned, and follow Chris on Twitter at Landry Football for all the latest breaking news. Follow me, Scott Seidenberg, at Scott's on air, S-C-O-T-T-S-O-N-A-I-R. This has been Rush the Field, college football podcast, which can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com. Until next week, Chris. Hey, look forward to it. Enjoy the week of football.
0: This is an MMA Insider's Quick Fix on Radio Influence. Is this like the third time Connor's quote unquote retired? Yeah. I mean, like, it, like to
2: me, like, I'm sorry, this is a negotiation tactic. Let's let's not kid ourselves. This is what this is. I mean, like, if you are running ESPN right now, you wake up to this news, you're going, what the hell? You you know the phone calls going to Dana White, going to Ari Emanuel, going, we just spent all this money with you over the last six months, and your biggest draw is not fighting anymore? Please tell me what's going on.
0: You know, I, I'm wondering, though, if – we, we, hear, we see all the stuff going on with Connor and we hear all the rumors and then you hear the reports about him in Florida smashing a fan's cell phone. It, it really raises the question, is there things going on outside of Connor's life right now that would prevent him from getting into the cage sooner rather than later? The speculation was that he would maybe fight this summer. Are there things happening that would prevent that from taking place is this announced retirement something more out of convenience is it a cover story for something bigger you know the the, the report was also out there that he was offered an opportunity to fight donald cerrone and it was going to be the co-main event and he didn't want a part of that which i cannot completely understand that to me is ridiculous that dana white would even offer that to him you know the biggest draw in the sport right now, and you want him to co-main event. Who cares whether or not he has a title? That's just that's just insane to me. The MMA insiders can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and RadioInfluence.com.